0: I want to invite a couple friends of mine to come forward with me real quick. Ivy and Eden, if you guys would just come on up real quick. Uh, As you guys are doing that, we've got kids in service today. So kids, let me ask you a question. Uh, Does anybody know what holiday is this week? Come on, kids. You can speak. Halloween. It's Halloween this week. If some of you were thinking my birthday, that was last week. So I'm glad you were thinking about that. This week is Halloween. And so I've, I've got my friends Ivy and uh, Eden here, and I'm going to give you guys this microphone. Do you guys hold on to that? you good with that? I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions about Halloween, just trying to figure out what it's all about. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you're like, am I supposed to celebrate Halloween? Well, let me tell you, okay, you don't have to do the goblins and the witches, but what other opportunity do you have to have your neighbors come to your house, okay, and for you to love your neighbors? This is a great opportunity. Families will come to your place, and you have the chance to love them, to get to know them. Listen, don't give cheap candy, okay? Jesus wouldn't have given the cheap candy. So give good candy. Be a good neighbor, all right? All right. Ladies, you guys know some things about Halloween. Can you guys share the microphone? You don't have to hog it. All right. Uh, What's the number one rule about Halloween? What's the most important thing that you should know about Halloween? What do you think? Having fun, that's good. What else do you think? Not to get too focused on it? You want to love God? That's a spiritual answer. We're at sure she's giving a Sunday school answer. I want a real answer. All right, probably one important thing about Halloween, and probably number one safe, is to be safe, right? You want to be safe. So, like, you know, make sure you know where you're going and, and whatever else. Uh, when you go up to a, a door, what are you supposed to do at the house? What do you do when you get up there? You knock. All right, then, then after you knock, then what do you do? Okay, now this is the rule. You may not know this, but if you don't say trick-or-treat at my house, you don't get candy. All right? So there's some kids that just walk up and knock, and they just hold their bag out. No, you got to say trick-or-treat. Make sure you say it loud enough for people to hear, because some people old like me have a hard time hearing, right? Um, uh, do, you, do you guys know about the parent tax? You don't know about the parent You know the daddy tax. Tell me about the daddy tax. I want to make sure all the kids understand how that works. What's the daddy tax? Uh, whenever we go to Dairy Queen and get ice cream, we have cream. Ooh, every time you go to Dairy Queen and get ice cream, you have to give Dad some. And the same thing works with your Halloween candy. See, my mom used to say, uh, you guys actually, we know what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, right? He had to taste everything before the king could have it. Well, my mom, she was my cupbearer, and so she would taste everything, at least the good stuff, just to make sure it's not poison. So, the dad tax, you know, that's how it works. And, uh, and then the last question I have for you is, um, when you're going like trick-or-treating, like, are you supposed to get a little bit of candy or a lot of candy? What? The point is to get a lot of candy, right? So, I actually, ladies, thank you guys so much for joining me with me. I've got... Some candy for you. Trick or treat. Happy Halloween. Get off stage. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Reminds me when I was a kid, uh, we used to take pillowcases. I don't know. My kids got these nice little, cute little Halloween bags. I used to take a pillowcase. Like I was going to fill the pillowcase up with candy. I think we may have, you know, uh, it was funny. Uh, we also. You know, we would go to the neighborhood that had the most houses. Because, again, you're looking for the most bang for your buck. And uh, the other thing that we did one year, uh, and kids, don't try this at home, is uh, we figured if we could scare some little kids, we'd get more candy if they dropped their bags. And so, bad idea. I should not have said that in a family service. But the thing about trick-or-treating is trick-or-treating shows something. And it's not just for the kids. It shows a little bit of our heart, right? Because when we go trick-or-treating, uh, we want as much candy as we can get. I mean, that's the point of trick-or-treating. And, and you go with my kids, and they're like, Dad, can you walk a little faster? Dad, you know, can we, this house gives better candy? Can we go to this house? And the goal is, kind of you want to get as much candy as you can get? And that is kind of like most of our nature, right? Most of us are kind of just like those trick-or-treaters. We want to get as much as we can. We want to make it all about ourselves. We want to make our life all about me. It's not natural for us to live for other people, to consider other people's interests above our own. In fact, it's not natural for us to put God's kingdom above everything else. Because we have this sinful nature. This sinful nature that wants to make it all about me, all about my kingdom, all about my wants, all about my needs, all about my desires. And this is a way that many people live their lives. In fact, oftentimes we are our own worst enemy, our enemies, are we not? You think about this, you've got goals in life, you've got things you want to do, and what is the thing that stops you from achieving those? Is it somebody else telling you, no, you can't do that? Or is it your own hang-ups? Your own insecurities? Things that stop you from doing what you want to do. We are often our own worst enemy. In fact, there's a uh, a political poster from the 1970s. Um, I think we've got a, a copy of this little cartoon. Pogo was the guy on the Pogo comic strip. And he's kind of looking over in the forest and he sees all this trash and he says, yep, we have met our enemy and he is us. And isn't that the truth? We are our own worst enemy. In fact, this idea is going to play out in Nehemiah chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter 5. We're running through the series uh, looking at the book of Nehemiah. And uh, today we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. If you haven't been here, let me kind of briefly summarize with where we've been. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. So his job was to taste things before the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned, uh, make sure it tasted good, whatever else. And he was successful in that. He, uh, he was uh, presumed wealthy. He had a good job, good, all, all you could ask for. And then God gave him a vision. God gave him a, a burden. And, and, and he heard about the walls. He heard about the city of Jerusalem being torn down and the walls being torn down. And God gave him the, the, the vision and the burden to go and lead an effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to allow that city to be revived, restored, and to bring revival for the people. And so he goes, he gets all the people on board. We saw that in Nehemiah chapter 3. He's got everybody spread out on the wall, and they're ready for success until we got to Nehemiah chapter 4 last week, and there was opposition. There were people from the outside that were upset about what he was trying to do. It was going to affect their kingdom. And so they rallied together, and they began to threaten Nehemiah. They began to threaten the people. Hey, we're going to hurt you if you continue to do this. And Nehemiah, remember, he gave us that idea that the mission of God is too important to And so Nehemiah, he encourages people, he leads them to persevere and push through the threats and the opposition. But Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to see a different type of opposition. In fact, this is probably the most dangerous type of opposition. This is opposition from the inside. This is opposition from God's own people. This should be opposition from within the church. Satan can, and what Satan often does is he uses other Christians to bring a tremendous amount of division and destruction to the structures that God's given us. To the things that God wants to accomplish, he uses other Christians to attack and to tear it down. In fact, when we think about Jesus' life, we think about his, his arrest, his trial, his death. You think about all those people who wronged Jesus. Who do you think probably hurt him the most? Be any more bitter than Judas, who is one of his 12 disciples. One of his closest friends is a guy who betrayed him. What was Judas' motivation? Remember what Judas' motivation was? 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed Jesus. See, much like Judas, financial greed often undermines the mission of God as a testimony to the unbelieving world around us, where we allow greed and, and, and lust for things of this world of the comforts of this world to consume us that make us a very poor testimony to the lost world around us. In fact, greed and, and money is such an important issue uh, that throughout the, the, the Gospels, when you look at Jesus, Jesus taught about this about t- almost 25% of the time. He said a lot of things about money. He said, he said money it will be a revelation to the priorities of your heart. You want to know what somebody values? Look at their, look at their bank statement, and that will tell you the things that they value the most. He said you cannot worship both God and money. It's one or the other. And so Nehemiah chapter 5, the mission of God is going to, require incredible unity. We saw that in chapter 3, that people had to be unified together. We saw that last week, where they tried to bring some, some division from the outside, and now the threat is going to be division on the inside, it's going to threaten the unity of God's people. And that includes dollars, that includes money. The big idea today is that as Christians, the gospel calls us to build unity even through our generosity, even including our dollars. The world will teach us that we are to love money and use people. People are there for you to benefit from so you can grow your empire. But as Christians, the Bible is going to teach us something different. The Bible teaches us to love people and use money. We use our money to love people. And I want to just be be clear as I I approach this topic. I'm not up here today preaching this this topic because I'm concerned and because I'm discouraged about our church. Because I'm not. Like financially, I think the Lord has just been blessing and leading and guiding, and I'm thankful for that. I'm preaching this topic of generosity because we happen to be going through the book of Nehemiah. We happen to come to a, a section of Scripture dealing with generosity. And so my hope is that the Holy Spirit will absolutely confront areas of our hearts and areas of our lives that we need to be, that we need to be stretched, and that we need to grow, and we need to bring in front of Jesus. But I also hope that the Holy Spirit uh, will build up what we're already doing so that you can continue doing what God has already put on your heart, and that is God has already been doing in your life. So Nehemiah chapter 5, before we jump in, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. God, we're thankful uh, once again just to be able to look at your word, and especially on a touchy subject like, like like money. God, I just pray that you help us to recognize that we're here today not to hear the pastor's opinion. God, this is your word speaking to us today. So God, I pray that you help us to lean in and that you would speak to every one of us in here today. God, for the areas that we know not, God, I pray that you would teach us. God, for the areas that we have not, God, I pray that you would give to us. God, for the areas that we are not, God, I pray that you would make us. Allow your Holy Spirit to rest on us now, Jesus, in holy and precious name. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are money. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There's a lot of, there are some families that were much like my family, where you've got a lot of mouths to feed. You've got lots of kids, so that makes lots of mouths to feed. And the older they get, they get to become teenagers and you can't believe how much teenagers can eat. And so the people were saying, hey, we're not working on our farms right now because right now God's called us to build rebuild the walls. We're working with Nehemiah. So we can't work on the farms, and so we're not getting the money from that. And so, so now things are getting really tough. And are, you know, we're having a hard time putting food on the table. Verse 3 says, there are also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So apparently there's some sort of famine in the land that's causing some of the, the, the harvest to be light. Additionally, you've got more people moving into the city, and so there's a greater number of people that you're trying to feed, and, and they're saying, hey, we're having a hard time putting food on the table. So, so naturally, what we have to do is we've got to begin mortgaging, mortgaging our houses, mortgaging our fields. And so that way we can mortgage it and get some money, and we can put food on the table, and that's what we're trying to do here. And that's what they're doing. The problem is when you begin to mortgage your farm, mortgaging your, your, your income potential. I mean, that, that, that's where their income came from, was from the farm. And so that's going to lead to the next problem, verse 4. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. The tax day's coming. You see this progression? Tax day's coming. And and so they're looking and say, well, we've already mortgaged our fields. we are already mortgaged our house. We're not going to get any money off the, off the harvest. And so we've got to pay our taxes. So this is the only option we have left is we'll start selling our kids. Now, I, we've got a lot of kids in here today. We could probably raise a good uh, bumper crop out of kids here. Just kidding, kids. We're not doing that.
1: But that was the idea. Hey, we've got to figure out how to get all this
0: stuff paid. And so we're going to sell our kids into slaves. And again, because they don't own their farms anymore, because they've been mortgaged, they can't get the money off the farm. So they can't get enough money to, to buy their kids back. Just because these people were trying to put food on the table. And I want, you, I want you to get the picture of the problem that we're in. Is here you've got people who are faithful to Nehemiah. People who are faithful to God. People are who are working day and night to rebuild the walls, to, to, to be obedient to the mission of God. These people aren't lazy. They're not looking for a handout. They're doing the will of God, and they found the will of God to be extremely costly for them. They can't feed their kids. They've lost their possessions. They've racked up debt. And we look at this, and we're saying, well, what's the problem here? Like, like what's the problem? We know it's not... People from the outside. We know it's not outside countries causing the problem. Well, maybe the problem is the famine, right? Maybe the problem is the famine. No, even better. Maybe the problem is the taxes. You know, the king was just charging too much on taxes. And we can look at that text, and we can probably say the famine, the taxes were a problem. But there's a greater problem. That was the outcry, and this was the fact that that God's own people, their brothers and sisters, were exploiting them. When these people were in need. Somebody said, hey, you know what? I'll offer you a loan, and I'm going to charge you interest on it. And when you can't pay the loan, I'm going to require you to sell me your kids, and I'm going to use your kids as slaves. And so they're, they're exploiting the poor people. Do you see how that works? You've got these wealthy people, and they're looking at their brothers in need, and they're thinking economically, thinking, I can use this situation to help myself. Again, what's our human nature? Look out for me to look out for my bottom line, to look out for my interest. And so you've got these wealthy people who are using people to love money. God's people who are bankrupting and enslaving self-Christians all the while they are working to rebuild a city that is supposed to be a witness of God's love. See you how know, backwards that seems? See, this thing still happens today. This is what it looks like. It looks like when you have credit card companies that target young people, college uh, college students. They target these college students to try to get them to buy things they cannot afford and, and have these students rack up incredible amounts of debt before they're able to even get a real job. This looks like the charitable organizations out there uh, that say, hey, we want your money for charity. And they use 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% of your donation on accept excessive uh, administrative costs. This looks like churches and leaders. There are churches and leaders. There's a guy by the name of Creflo Dollar who uh, decided, hey, I need 220,000 donors to donate $300 so I can buy a Gulfstream jet so I can proclaim the gospel throughout the world. He couldn't fly commercial. He had to have his own private jet so he could go and spread the gospel to the world around them. This looks like kids knocking on your, on your door expecting you to give them candy on Halloween, right? Exploitation at its best. Now, you've got to picture these wealthy people. They're looking and saying, you know, exploitation is really a strong word. Like, I really don't think what we're doing is that wrong. I mean, it's, it's legal for us to lend money. And we're looking and seeing our people in need, and we're trying to help the poor out. They're in need, and I have resources, so I'm going to give them a loan. But we've got to understand, as as Christians, the church is supposed to look different than the world. And even though the world, even though our country says it's legal for you to do this, we have a higher standard that says we are to live different than the world. If you are a Christian, you are to look at your finances different than a non-Christian looks at your finances. And specifically for the Jews back in this day, God's word said some very specific things about how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ, your countrymen. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. He's saying "You're, you're welcome to loan money to a fellow Christian, but do not dare you charge interest what were they doing in Nehemiah chapter 5? It goes even further. Levit- Leviticus chapter 5, uh, excuse me, Levit- Leviticus chapter 25. It says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, he says, you don't just offer them alone. It goes further. He says, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit But fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money, your money interest, nor give him food for profit. See, if we are a Christian, we live by a higher standard. God's word dictates how we live. And even though something might be legal in our country, as Christians, we have this higher calling. And as a Christian, we are to be generous. We are to extend grace and mercy to the people around us. In fact, that passage in Leviticus 25 goes further. Verse 39 says that if anybody owes you, and if they try and sell themselves to you, or if they try and sell your kids to you, you cannot make them a slave. So here's Nehemiah chapter 5. You've got these wealthy people who are doing what many of us do. Looking out for number one. Trying to deal with our bottom line taking advantage of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Going completely against what God's word says. Now I'll be honest, you approach a passage like this, and it's easy for us to read a passage like this in a very self-righteous manner. Because I'm guessing, I'm guessing none of you have any of these kids for slaves, right? I'm guessing these are your natural kids, they're not slave kids. I'm guessing that nobody in here has their vineyard mortgaged. Because I, I think, Rick, you're the only one with a, with a vineyard, and it's about how many branches? Twelve branches. See, I, I'm guessing that, that when we look at this, it's hard for us to understand exactly what they're talking about. And so we can look at this passage and feel very self-righteous. Well, I've got no slaves. I didn't enslave anybody's kids, so I'm doing pretty good today. But see, that's just looking at the outward part. We've got to look at the heart. And what is driving them to do this? What is driving them to enslave these kids, to charge this interest? Is it not greed? Is it not lust for the, in our hearts for the comforts of this world? Is it not that we look around the world around us, we look at all the comforts of this world, and we think, I want to have some of that. I want the best that this life has to offer for me right here and right now. We can point our fingers at them and say, look what they were doing wrong. But what about your life? When you consider God's kingdom, when you consider the mission of God, of making disciples of all nations, of the mission that God is trying to accomplish through the church, when you consider the suffering people around you, is what God is trying to do hindered because you desire a comfy life? To be set up for the future, to have a comfortable Christian life instead of being somebody who is wholly devoted to God. That includes all of yourself, including your dollars, including your bank account, including your resources. See, this is the problem they're dealing with. Money became an idol, money was more important than loving people. So there was an outcry. People were upset. Here's Nehemiah's response, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry. I heard these words. I know some of you are saying, anger? We're not supposed to be angry. That's, we're not supposed to be angry. There's two types of anger I want us to understand. The first one many of us are familiar with. This is an anger from our own flesh. This is the anger I get when I leave early in the morning and take my kids to school and I have to be in this traffic line. Of people who don't know how to drive. I don't know if you ever been there. You're in these pickup lines at school and you're like, do you not know what the drop-off spot is for? You can't stop in the middle of the road. My kids, they have to listen to me every morning complain about this. Like, this, there's an anger that we have for ourselves. It's all about me. It's about, about my kingdom. It's about my feelings, about my rights, about, about uh, my wants, about, about my own flesh, about how it affects me. That's the anger that many of us know. Many of you know that anger from the people around you. But there's a second type of anger, and that's the type of anger that Nehemiah has. This is a righteous anger. An anger that reflects the character of God. See, there are some things in this world that you should be angry about. Some things that happen in this world that should tick you off. And if they don't, you probably need to ask yourself, well, why not? This righteous anger becomes uh, the measure for the concern and love that we have. For how we are caring about the things that God cares about. In fact, this is the same type of anger that, that Jesus had. Remember the story of Jesus going into the temple. And he sees the people who have turned uh, the temple into a money making scheme, where they're they're uh, doing their, their uh, uh, selling the, selling the selling the animals for offerings. Uh, they're allowing you to exchange your money. They're doing these, these different things, and they've turned the temple of God into something that was never intended for it. Remember, Jesus did came in and he flipped all the tables around, kicked everybody out of the temple. Because what they were doing was contrary to the heart of God. Contrary to the worship of God that was supposed to happen at the temple. And it's this righteous anger that is going to compel Nehemiah into action. Because as we are looking at the world around us, when there are things that are contrary, that are offensive to God, listen, we need to take a stand to do something about it, to alleviate the wrong. Not just stand back and feeling bad for what's happening and having no care to do anything about it. In fact, I don't know if you've seen this Burger King commercial recently. I can have a weird sense of humor, so I think this commercial is hilarious. Uh, you know, the commercial centers on a boy being bullied in the lobby at Burger King. And, and it shows these people in the lobby who are not doing The Kids are messing around, the kids are being bullied, and all these people who are not engaging with the kids, just letting them be bullied. So then the Burger King employee, this is where I think it's really funny. He says, well, I'm going to burger, I'm going to bully your burger. He takes the Whopper and starts smashing it, beating up on your burger. And then they gave him their order, and they had a smashed up burger for for lunch. Listen, 95% of those people that had their burger bullied went up and complained about it. And only 12% engaged with the kid who was being bullied right in front of their face. See, we need to have a righteous anger. And we need to be compelled to alleviate the injustice, to alleviate the suffering, to alleviate what's wrong around us, to be engaged in the process. So verse 7, here's what he does. He says, I took counsel with myself, which is important. It's important not to fly off in an angry rage. So Nehemiah takes a second to think To himself to pray to calm down. He says, And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Did you hear what he just did? He gathered everybody together in a great assembly. What's happening right then and there is so important that he stops all of the work. Now, we've got to understand. Like last week, when there was these threats from the outside, when people were threatening their lives, Nehemiah never stopped the work on the wall. Remember, he said, hey, you're being threatened. Look, you got a shovel in one hand, pick up a sword in the other, and keep going. We are not going to stop what's happening here. We've got to be focused on the mission of God. But now, you've got the most dangerous type of opposition. He says, listen, everybody stop and come here. These people may have been united to an obje- to." an objective, but now they are divided in affection. And he recognizes this threat is so great that it can bring to nothing the work of God. That threat from in, within, that threat from the inside, the opposition from within, can completely diffuse what God is trying to do. Nehemiah says, listen, everyone, everybody to stop, and I want you to come. In. And he said to them, verse, verse 8, we, as far as we are able, have Brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold into the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word. They recognized how stupid it is. But how when they got sold into slavery, and they were slavery in Egypt, all that God did to bring them out of slavery, when they were dispersed among the land, and all that God did to bring the people back, and now it's their own people putting them back into slavery. Verse 9, so I said to them, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of our enemies? In this confrontation, there's two things he wants them to think about. Two considerations. The first one is the fear of God. What you consider the fear of God. Think about this. When you see this word fear, it doesn't mean like, like Halloween type of fear, like I'm afraid. It means reverence. He says, I want you to think about this. God gave us this land. Like, we didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We we didn't inherit it. Like, God gave us this land. And when we disobeyed, remember, God kicked us out. But then by his grace, he brought us back in. Not because of anything we've done, because of all that he has done. And now, we're taking the land, and we're acting like it's ours. We're taking the land and acting like, hey, we deserve this. We're so great. Now I'm going to charge interest on it. He says, don't you even consider the fear and the reverence of God, the fact that God's grace was on you to give you the land in the first place? And now you're going to try and use it for your own glory? He says, walk in fear of God. Live in in light of who he, He is and what He has done for you. The second motivation, second consideration is the reputation of God. Because you know, when the church begins to act like the world, you know the first person to notice it is? You know who it is? When a Christian begins to act like the world, the first person that's going to notice is the world. That's the way it works. People are watching us. Do you really follow that God? Do you really believe the things you say you believe in? See, it's much better for us to live in light with these things these two considerations, the fear of God and the reputation of God. It's so much, our lives would be so much better if we could live in light of the fear of God, of understanding all the grace that we've been given. That, 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 that By nature of, of the family that God has given you, the job that you have, the fact that you are able to come to any church you want and worship freely, do you understand the grace that God has given us? And because of that, it should cause us Walk in reverence towards Him, in recognition of all that He's done, and we should 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 take in consideration in our lives the reputation of God, because as a Christian, you and I are going to be the most tangible expression to others of who Jesus is. That they will see Jesus in us before they see Jesus for themselves. We live in light of representing Him. We become His hands. And his feet. They won't see Jesus until they see him in us. And that's the reputation that's at stake when we are claiming to live our faith, but not fully live it. So Nehemiah says in verse 10 Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. I don't know exactly if that's saying that Nehemiah was participating in this scheme or not, um, but at least he implies himself as, as lending money to these people. So he says, let us abandon this exact exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and their percentage of money and grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests made them swear to me or swear to do as they had promised. Nehemiah calls them to repentance. He says, what you've been doing is wrong. You need repentance. And I think he gives us a great picture for what repentance is. He says, you need to stop what you're doing and restore what you've done wrong. And this is what repentance is. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry, it's not just feeling bad that you've done something dumb. It's allowing that guilt to compel you to restore or to reconcile as far as you're able to what's, what you've done wrong. In fact, isn't this what you teach your kids? Like I, I've got, I've got four boys and a little girl. My four boys love sports, and, and, and you'll see them outside in our front yard playing whatever game is going on. It may be baseball, maybe basketball, maybe football. You've been around boys, though. Sometimes you know when they start playing. Sometimes it gets a little bit competitive, and sometimes it gets a little bit rough. Sometimes it gets a little bit physical, and sometimes one of those boys ends up on the ground crying. Now, the easy thing to do is say, I'm sorry, but when when that really happens in my family, it's probably more your family than mine, really happens in mine, but but when that boy's on the ground, what I've tried to teach my kids is you're going to say sorry, and then you're going to sit there with them and make sure they're okay and be there so that way they know, hey, I, I'm not just saying it, but I'm actually trying to reconcile, to make it right. It's this process of stop and make it right. Reconcile as much as you can the wrong that's done. Because imagine, imagine in Nehemiah chapter 5, imagine if all the, the rich people, that have, imagine if all they said was just sorry. They didn't restore anything they did wrong. All those poor people would continue to be poor. They still want to have their farms. They still want to have their kids. They'd still be in the same situation. Just now you've got people feeling sorry for. Them. No, it, it, it's this process. Repentance is a process of stopping. And restoring. Verse 13 Nehemiah does a little symbolic act. He shakes out his garments um, kind of as a way to remind them. Uh, that, that God will shake down anybody who promised to do right and later reneged on it and didn't, didn't follow through. But here, here's the beautiful thing about repentance. I want you to see this in verse 13. His repentance leads to something beautiful. It says, repent. The end of verse 13 says, and all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. In the beginning of this chapter, we see this outcry of oppression. And now, after repentance has happened, there's an outcry of worship. And this is what happens when we repent. When we uh, repent are, and are in a right standing with God, as we have this freedom to worship God. In fact, this is why here at Restoration, we've developed our services where, where we do a couple worship songs in the beginning, but we want to have an opportunity to sing some worship songs after the message, where we have that opportunity to confess sin, to, to, to anything that's, that's hindering our relationship with God, we would have that opportunity to get that out so that way we can worship God freely. We have that time to make sure we're right with Him. But Nehemiah leads them into this time of repentance. Leads the people into repentance. He also acknowledges his own guilt. Remember he said, uh, you know, we were doing the same thing. And here's, because of that, here's what Nehemiah did after the fact part of his repentance process. Verse 14, says, Moreover, I was governor in Judah for 12 years under King Artaxerxes, and neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. See, even though he has every reason, every, every permission to tax the people, to pay his salary. Nehemiah says, you know what? I'm not going to take that salary. I'm going to be governor of the land and not require you to pay me to do it. Because of the fear of God.
1: Because I recognize the
0: situation that we're in. And not only did he not take a salary, it continues verse 17, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came, us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Here you've got Nehemiah who's the leader. He's giving us a portrait of what it looks like to be a servant leader. Where not only does he not take the, the salary But he invites 150 people every day to his table. He says, I want you to come to my house. Now, Now, we do a life group. And we've got like eight people in our life group. And it's, it's some money to make that happen. We're, we're thinking as we, as we do our grocery shopping, we're thinking of, of what that's going to take. Imagine having 150 people come to your house every day. And listen, we're not just serving chicken nuggets. You hear what he said? He said, we've got steak. We've got lamb chops. We've got duck. We've got all sorts of wine. Every day, 150 people, and this is what he's feeding them. You see that? Think about this. Nehemiah trying to be faithful to God. And it's going to hurt him financially. He's going to feel that every month when he's paying his grocery bill. And that was how many. Did we How many lamb chops did we serve? The gospel calls us to unity through generosity. And listen, that generosity it hurt Nehemiah financially. This is the idea of, of sacrificial giving. Luke twenty-one tells a story where the, the rich are at church and they're they're putting their their offerings. They're rich. They're putting their offerings into the offering plate. And then comes this poor widow she's got two copper coins. She's got pocket change. She puts her change in the offering plate, And Jesus says, you see her? She gave more than everybody else. They're like, what do you mean? Those rich people. And, and he said, they gave out of their abundance. They didn't feel it. They have so much that they can give that offering and not, not feel the weight of it at all. But that poor woman, she's poor. Yeah, she was still faithful to God. This is where we, again, say money reveals your heart. And God calls us to sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving looks different for everybody. For some in here, that any sort of giving is going to be a sacrifice. It's gonna, They're going to feel it. It's going to hurt them. Some in here, working up towards 10%. That's a goal. Hey, I want to give 10% tithe to the church. In fact, my wife and I, when we were... Uh, newlyweds, maybe we have been married a couple years, we weren't given to the church. And we felt like the Lord was speaking to us. And we're kind of looking at it, and I'm like, well, I worked three jobs already trying to provide for my family. We've got, I don't know how many little kids we had at home. I'm working all these jobs, and we're looking at the budget, and we're saying, man, I, I don't know how we can squeeze 10% out to give to God. But we kind of, well, okay, God, this is what you called us to do, and so we made that commitment. God, this is yours. And listen, I I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I don't think that you give your 10% to God and take the other 10% to Legends Casino and God's going to make you rich. I mean, that's not, that's not what I'm telling you. But I can tell you what. Man, God is faithful time and time and time again. When we made that commitment to God, we're going to give. God, we're going to give. We're going to be faithful on this. Man, you worship God with your money, and he is faithful in return and time and time again. Hey, we, we, we're not living in the big house. We're not not wealthy by any means, but God's been gracious and honored that. For some in here, that's the goal. And if I could give 10%, that would be sacrificial giving. Let me just throw this out. There are others, and if you gave 10%, that would be out of your abundance. You wouldn't even feel it. You wouldn't even miss it. For some, sacrificial giving is going to be above and beyond. Concludes, verse 18, 19, it says, Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah was not consumed all for himself. He was consumed for the unity of the people. He understood what it means that the gospel calls Christians to build unity their generosity. Let me just close with, with just a couple of thoughts. Number one, do you recognize the dangers within the church? Do you realize that, that we can be vigilant to all the attacks from the world? We can be vigilant to everything that the world can throw at us, but are we vigilant relationally? I mean, it's one of those things, we talk about being a diverse church, about wanting to welcome all sorts of people into our church. And so we can do that. We can set aside our differences for the sake of somebody new who will come and find Christ. But are we willing to set aside our differences for the sake of each other? Those things that rub us wrong, those things that we have these preferences for this or that, are we willing to set those things aside? The unity of the mission, the unity of what God is doing here. Because I'll tell you what, the greatest attack, the greatest threat on our church isn't going to be from the city telling us what we can and cannot preach. It's not going to be from the president dictating how we do church. It's going to be from how we treat each other. This is why we sang that song this morning. They will know we are Christians by our love. Secondly, are you... Committed to generosity? Are you committed to that? Because I know my struggle is is too many times I feel tempted to be concerned with my own lifestyle, with my own comfort level, where I don't care nearly enough about helping the people in need around me. So, are we concerned with the people around us? Are we concerned with the mission of God? And perhaps are we hindering the mission because we want to live the finest life now. We want to enjoy all that this life has to offer while we miss the blessings.